0: Well, welcome back to Christian Life Academy. We are working our way through our confession of faith, our doctrine, which is the 1689 Second London Baptist Confession. And it starts um, appropriately with chapter one is of the Holy Scriptures. And that is because of the fact that every other doctrine that we're going to look at as we go through the confession is based on one basic principle. And that is that it is contained in and explained in the Scripture. So, without believing the scripture, we can't believe the rest of the doctrine. We have to get this right for us to believe anything else so we've been working our way through it, and we are now begun last week uh, with looking at the need for a translation. This is in paragraph eight, and it talks about the uh, paragraph talks about that the Word of God should be available in the vulgar language of the people, and that was uh vulgar meant that it was the common language to the people. It was kind of the rudimentary language to the people. It was uh, not Latin, as the Roman Catholic Church had practiced, and it was uh, a language that the people could understand itself. Now, that it is kind of ironic when you think about um, that to some extent because there are obviously a lot of people today who say that uh, we, you know, the King James Version, which was published what year? 1611, this was the common Bible in use at the time of this, our Confessions publication. That was considered the vulgar language of the people. So thee, thou, thy, all that thing, you think, oh yeah, well that's how everybody spoke. That's not true. So if you watch a movie and you base what people said based on a movie, you will see that. But that was not common to the people. This was a higher level of English In fact, adopted by a famous author in most of his works. Who was that? Shakespeare. Shakespeare adopted the language from the King James Bible to use it in his works. Because it was almost a a higher level of English than was common. And yet, this was not considered to be a Bible that the people could not understand. It was not considered to be a Bible they couldn't understand. Did they speak with thee and thou no, they didn't. But they knew what it meant. They knew what it meant. So it was considered a Bible that was printed in the common or vulgar language of the people. And of course, it's not just about the Bible being. It's, the confession doesn't say that it must be printed in English, right? It says in the vulgar language, which means whoever, French, Spanish, Portuguese, you name it, wherever it is, it should be translated into the common language of the people, so that the people could read and understand what the Word of God said. This is how they would know what God tells them to do and not to do, right? This is how they would know how to behave. This is how they would get their instructions. This is how they would be able to actually search the Scriptures and check and make sure that what's being preached to them was right. It was through having it available to themselves. So, as we start to walk through... This uh, English translations, let me just back up here for a second. Uh, all right, so we talked about Hebrew and English, different translations today. This was the key thing I just wanted to remind us of, the last point last time before we ended, which is, the selection of which English version to use cannot be a personal choice. It can't be. Now you say, well, what do you mean? Brance is going to tell us? Yes, this morning? Is, no, he's not going to. Now, the point is, is it must be the version that's as close to God's original inspired word as possible. It's not the version that makes you feel good. It's not the version that's in comic book form. It's the version, there are those, by the way, if you don't know. Anyway, it's the version that's closest as possible to the original inspired autograph that the writer actually wrote. That would be the one you should have. Why? Because it's closest to being accurate. Does it make a difference? if Jesus is not the Son of God? It does. And there's English translations that take that out. Is that a big deal? Yeah. How about, is it a big deal if God did not create the world in six days? If he used millions of years? There's versions that say that. That say that. So do you think that makes a difference? It makes a big difference makes a big difference. So that's why I'm saying here that it cannot be a personal choice. It must be as close to God's original inspired word as possible. Okay, that's pretty basic. All right, we'll work our way through that. All right, so first of all, we're going to talk about a standard for judging English Bible translation. So we are going to get into very, I mean, today, we're going to talk about the different methods that are used to translate the word of God from the original into English, we're going to talk about those methods, and there's two different aspects of that, we'll work on that. But let's understand that the standard is defined in the confession, and this is what we should embrace as well. It's very it's very clear and common sense. By his singular care and providence, kept pure in all ages, are therefore authentic, so as in all controversies of religion, the church is finally to appeal to them. So the idea is, is that God, in his singular or remember we talked about this, specific care, kept the word of God pure in all ages. Now this becomes very problematic if you start to go down the path of a new translation is finally the word of God. What does that mean? Well, that would then mean that for 2,000 years, the church has not had the word of God. That's a problem. So the writers of the Confession, look, this is, there was only two English versions when they wrote the Confession, two, and they were very close. What were they? Who wants to guess? Now, I'm not talking about, we're going to go back to the Wycliffe, because it really wasn't around anymore, or any of those. What was the two predominant versions that existed at this time? What? King James James and Geneva. King James and Geneva. Was there differences? There was. There were slight differences between the two, but they were very close. They wrote this when that's what they had. Are you with me on this? In other words, they understood that God had to keep his word pure in order for it to actually be effective to the church. This is more apropos for us today than it was to them. It's a bigger deal for us, is what I'm saying. Does that make sense? It's a bigger deal for us when we see the, all the different translations that are coming out now. Okay, so, certainly, there's, <laughs> there's just no way around this. English Bible translations are a current controversy. There's no question about this. We must appeal to the scriptures themselves through the Holy Spirit. There's not any question that this is an issue today. Now, let me ask you a question. Did you, in the last two and a half years, since January of 2020, you know where I'm going back here, right? January of 2020, let's, not, let's say the 1st of February. I'm not going to the January 6th thing. Let's go February 1st, 2020. Has there been a time where you got frustrated with the news? Yeah, yeah, right. I mean, you, yeah, this week, you know, right? I mean, but, I mean, obviously, you, there is a point that the frustration level on something, whatever it is, the news is just a, it seemed like an easy one because everybody's got the same issue with this, right? I've never talked to anybody who has a problem with the news, and I don't care where they are on the political spectrum. They have a problem with the media. There's a point that you get to in that frustration where you turn it off. You stop. You quit watching. You quit listening. Or you severely curtail it because you just can't take it. You know, it's just like some things you You got too much in life going on to worry about what's going on with everything else that everybody's talking about is horrible. You can't, there's so many horrible things. You You, just, it's, you refocus. Anybody else feel like that? Anybody else feel like that same way? This is what's happened with this controversy. This is what's happened. You know, you know, this is what you want. This is what I want. You just want the Bible to be the Bible and not worry about it. Because, look, there's so much in the Bible that you do need to worry about that you don't want to worry about that if it's accurate. Isn't that true? It's, it's kind of like you don't want to worry about if the dictionary is the dictionary. You want to believe that the words you know are the words you know. That's what they mean, right? You don't want to have to worry about the purity of the gasoline you put in your car. True? You just want to go up to the pump, put your card in, fill the tank with gas, and not think about it. Too much other stuff going on in life. Is that true? This is what's happening with this controversy. Many pastors have moved away from discussions on this controversy. It's still there. They know it. And most of them, if they're honest, when you ask them about it, will say something like, I think there's some issues, but I've got so many other things I've got to focus on. I'm not going to have to be able to get into that, or I'm not going to be able to spend time with that or I'm not going to actually get into that controversy and try to explain it well. Now, you could say, well, wait a minute. Are they actually saying, just flat out, that they're not going to preach the whole counsel of God? Not exactly. Because in their own words, what they would say is, I'm just trusting the Bible I have is the whole counsel of God. That's a problem. It's a problem because if we don't understand what truly is the Word of God, then are you truly preaching the whole counsel of God? That goes down a path that is not comfortable for pastors. At least the ones I've talked to aren't comfortable about it at all because it's true. And they know it's true, but when you think about the scheme of things... They just want to accept that the Bible is the Bible that's so I, I think we we could at least we could understand that can't we can't we I mean we're going to go through this and it may not make you feel comfortable sorry <laughs> but you'll have the information and then if at the end of it you're able to say you know what okay and the Spirit gives you peace about it, have peace about it. Right? Your whole focus of your Christianity should not be on translations. It's important, but it's not the most important. The most important is your relationship with Jesus Christ. And out of that relationship and that closeness and that seeking to please and honor Him comes everything. Right? But we don't turn a blind eye to any weak spots. We at least have to know what's going on. We at least have to have a clue what's going on. So in case it is a big issue, we can then respond ourselves personally, right? We can deal with it whatever it is. So, let's give an example. Sorry, popped in my head. I don't think there's any going to be any offense on this, but baptism. <laughs> All right? So, Mr. Szpraisy is a according to Kurt he he is a immersion baptist in in doctrine, correct? Yeah. yeah. So he attends a presbyterian church. That's why I said well, I'm not trying to offend anybody here. But our presbyterian brothers do not believe in immersion baptism. Correct, right? He he knows. Correct. True. All you know this. This is this is true. Oh, go ahead. Right, right, that's right. Not the covenant, not the children so, there is a discrepancy between what we believe and they believe. Now, how important is that? It's not important for, enough for us to not be in fellowship with them. It's not important enough for us to say that they're not believers. Do, do we have a chapter in the Confession on baptism? Well, baptism, we do. In fact, it's in two of baptism in the Lord's Supper, and then of baptism. We have two chapters. But that is not significant enough if it's a doctrine for us to get derailed in our Christian life and in fellowship with other believers to say, well, I can't go to apple tree with that person because they believe in infant baptism. Are, are you with me on this? So what do we do? We say, okay, well, this is what we believe. It's important that we understand why we believe it, but it's not important enough for us to derail our whole Christianity over it. You with me on this? That's that's the example. All right. That's enough of that (laughs) prep. All right. There's only two ways to determine any religious controversies. There's only two. Through man's wisdom or God's holy word. That's it. I mean, think about that, right? So we talked about already in the confession. We read earlier in this paragraph... We also read it in paragraph 1 of this chapter that one of the major purposes of the Word of God is so that it could be available for the church to go to it in times of controversy. The church can go to the Scripture to see what the Scripture says about the issue, right? Now, does that mean that all believers are going to agree as soon as they go to Scripture? No, the Presbyterians use the Scriptures too, right? They use the Scripture too, so it's not like there is a, well... We take the scriptural approach, and they don't take the scriptural. They think they're taking the scriptural approach, too. Let me read a couple of verses. 2 Corinthians 10, 5. Casting down imaginations and every high thing that exalteth itself against the knowledge of God and bringing into captivity every thought to the obedience of Christ. What are we to do as believers? We're to bring everything into captivity through obedience to Christ. How do we know how to obey him? Because it popped in our head? That would be your imagination. It would be through the word of God. Proverbs 22, 19 through 21. That thy trust may be in the Lord, I have made known to thee this day, even to thee. Have not I written to thee excellent things and counsels and knowledge? That I might make thee know the certainty of the words of truth that thou mightest answer the words of truth to them that send unto thee. Now, this is only two verses. We actually already read some the last couple of weeks. Where the word of God is saying, look, you need to understand these things so that you can deal with issues. So that you can deal with issues. We already actually read the verses where the church is specifically commanded to appeal to the word of God for issues. We also see, of course, that most of Paul's writings are letters to churches. Right, Where he tells them, you're doing good, but most of the rest of the book, we need to do better. Right? We need to do better. Paul himself frequently says, these are the words of God, as God has commanded. The words of our Lord. He uses that language in his books to make sure that the church is understood, this is the word of God. I'm writing to you on God's behalf. He has inspired these words through me to give to you. So, is the church in a position then to say, well, Paul wrote some good stuff, but that Dan Brown, he's got some pretty convincing arguments too. What's the difference? God's wisdom, man's wisdom, right? God's wisdom, man's wisdom. Now, You might be thinking, I don't want to confuse the issue on this, that, well, yeah, but wait a minute. What if I read somebody's commentary or somebody writes a book on a subject and then can I not trust that? Are you you with me on this? So John MacArthur writes a a commentary on something. I don't know who else. Brance Gillihan writes a commentary on something. Paul Sauve writes a commentary on something. Okay, so can't you trust what they say? What about when they preach? Can't you trust what they say? As long as it is in accordance with God's word. As long as it's in accordance with God's word. So can you take the words of men and completely accept them discounting the scripture? No. And frankly, the Holy Spirit within you should bring to question issues. Like, you shouldn't feel comfortable about that. You know, when Brant said that we all have to wear Nike tennis shoes if we're believers, there should be a little thing in you that's like, that does not sound right to me. Something feels wrong about that. Right? I think it's supposed to be Puma or something like this. <laughs> Whatever it is, you're going to have some awkward feeling that this is not right. Why? Because the spirit within you is actually testifying to you himself. So then you're going to have to look at the scripture. You're going to have to ask Brant, what does it say about Nike? Where is that in the scripture? A, well, second hesitations as well as first temptations, both of them. Right. So he's gonna to have to come up with something. So this is be true when you're reading a commentary. Right? Look, here's the way that I got convinced that dispensationalism was completely false. Didn't make any sense. It wasn't right by reading the book of the guy who wrote who actually came up with the idea. Because as I read the book, it was very really, because This is not right. He's, misinter- he's misquoting the scripture. That's not what that says. Or there was places where he didn't have scripture, right? So it became very clear because the spirit within me was saying, look, this, something's wrong here. Hello, red flag. Came obvious. This is the way we should all be. Sensitive to the spirit. So that when we are taking somebody else's word as explaining what the word of God says, that our spirit tells us this is true. This is true. And then if you say, well, I'm not sure if I trust that I can be sensitive enough to that. Okay, all right. So then what do you do? You do what the Bereans did. What did the Bereans do? They searched the scripture to see what the truth of it was, right? So they were hearing preaching, and then they would search the scriptures to see. Is that what the scriptures say? That's what they did. And they're praised for this. They're praised for this. Noble Bereans, that's what they're called, right? That's what we would do. That's what we should do. So, when we talk about the standard for judging English Bible Bible translation, we first of all start by saying where we have to look. But then, we talk about two other things that we've already covered in depth. So, I just have a couple of bullet points here to remind you what they were. I believe it it wasn't last week, it was the week before. First was the doctrine of verbal plenary inspiration. Now, this is incredibly important to us when we look at the methods that are used to translate Bibles. Okay, are you with me on this? Now, if you're not with me, that's okay, because I have some bullet points on the slide that I don't want to try to steal my own thunder on. So let me read those. First of all, verbal plenary, what does it mean? Verbal extends to the actual words. It's the belief that God breathed the actual words that the writers used. Plenary is every word and to all parts. In other words, completely. Verbal plenary inspiration is God inspired every part of the original writings. In fact... It mandates that the translators must focus on the word as the basic unit of translation because it's the basic unit of inspiration. No other understanding or view of inspiration results in the exact and clear message of God through his written word. If he inspired every word, then his intention is that we have every word. Now, this may seem like so basic. You're like, what? is this Christian Life Academy kindergarten version, first grade? What are we in here? No. No. I want you to think about this because many of the translations today are not based on this. They're based on, instead of a word for word, I can't help stealing my own thunder. This is the way this goes. They're based on thought for thought. So what they would say is is that God had this thought in this passage, and so now I must translate that and explain in English what his thought was. Are you with me on this? There, that's a difference, isn't it? Look, if God inspired the thought and not every word, then all we need is his original thought. Now this becomes difficult. Very difficult. Very quickly. How? Have you ever read a passage of Scripture and then read it again later and got something out of it different? Like, for whatever reason, the first reading or an earlier reading gave you a certain understanding or thought of what was being told to you through that passage, but then later, maybe it's even through a message or something, you see something there that you didn't see before. That there is something else in that passage. This becomes a huge problem. When the translation is based on thought for thought. Why? Because now it's the translator's understanding of the passage that's being translated. So did he think that the thought that was there was the first thought you read when you read that passage? Or was it the second thought you had when you read that passage? You see what I mean? This becomes a big problem. If you don't believe in verbal plenary inspiration and you believe in thought for thought, that God just inspired the thoughts and the writers wrote it however they wanted to, now it takes a great deal of interpretation for the translation. You have to interpret what that meant and then explain it in English. If you take that thought God's message is not clear. God's message is only as clear as the translator interpreted it. Could the translator have interpreted it correctly? Of course. Could they have interpreted it wrong? Of course. Why? They're interpreting it. You see the difference between interpreting and translating? Where translating is taking the words and putting them into another language, while interpreting is taking the meaning of a passage and then translating it? Now this comes across very subtly. It comes across very subtly. Like, our translators seek to understand the message of God to his people and his church as it would have been originally received and seek to explain it in words that the current generation can understand. That sounds pretty nice, right? Except what they're saying is, first of all, God's word was not timeless. It only applied to those who he gave it to. Because it doesn't apply to us. Somebody must translate that after it's interpreted. It must be interpreted so that we understand it today. Now, this leads to all kinds of problems. And it's essentially all has to do with making God's word no longer God's word. So this is how churches can justify we're going to have a female pastor. Well, that's what he meant back then, because that was only for that culture at the time. Or homosexuality is not a sin. It's fine. Why? Well, at the time, the culture, it was wrong. But that's not how it is today. Right? Have you heard these things? You see churches that do this? Yeah. How? Because they they actually say God's word is not relevant to us today unless it's properly interpreted. It must be interpreted. Word for word doesn't matter anymore. It's the thought. It's the idea. It's the concept. Now, you know what that means? You can't count on it for anything. Why? Well, because how do I know that your interpretation is the right one and somebody else's interpretation is not the right one? How do you know that? Well, I've been an interpreter longer than that guy's been. (laughs) Really? That's what makes the difference? Well, I prayed about it more than, you know. We're a bigger publishing house than, than those guys. There isn't a valid excuse. There isn't one. If God inspired every word, he wants us to have every word. Are you with me? Does this make sense? All right. So now here we go. Standard applied translation philosophy. So we're going to talk about the translation philosophy. We're not going to, so the next thing we'll we'll get into will be the source material. That's a biggie. But the translation philosophy, very important. So there's two primary elements needed to translate the Bible. The two primary elements needed to translate the Bible are the translation philosophy and the underlying Greek and Hebrew text. So there's two ways we can mess it up. And that is how we're going to translate it, which we were just talking about, right? We're going to define it, but how you're going to translate it and where it comes from, right? So... You say, well, I've never been in this part of the class before, so I've never heard of this before, and the preachers are preaching about it generally, so I don't know, uh, What not there just like one Hebrew and Greek? No, there's not. You say, well, does it matter what we translate on? Okay, so if we translated it based on the Quran, you think we'd come up with a different scripture? Yeah, of course we would come up with a different scripture, Right? right? If we translated God's word as being defined by the serpent, would we come up with a different version of what God said? Yeah, Eve did. The serpent told her a different version, didn't he? Did he really say, he questioned it. So the two basic philosophies used in translation of the scriptures, they're not just a degree of difference. They're completely different starting and ending points. All right. So here they are. Formal equivalence and dynamic equivalence. Now formal equivalence, which you'll see as we work through the slides, sometimes I'm referring to it as FE and dynamic equivalence sometimes I'm referring to it as DE. Formal equivalence is literally aka word it's literal. It's word for word, it's form oriented. Dynamic equivalence, aka paraphrase, is thought for thought, it's content oriented. Let's make sure we understand this. Formal equivalence is literal. Dynamic equivalent is paraphrase. Formal equivalence is word for word, like we were just talking about. Dynamic equivalence is thought for thought. Formal equivalence is form-oriented. In other words, whatever the form is of the original word, that's what we must translate. We have to try to get that across. Is there an exact translation for every form of the Greek and the Hebrew and the Aramaic? No, there isn't. In those cases... I was just about to go down a path where I'm going to steal my own thunder again. I'll explain it to you later. All right. Dynamic equivalence is content-oriented. In other words, it's what is the content of this passage trying to say, right? So formal equivalence is what does it say? How does it say it? That's what we need to do. Dynamic equivalent is, well, this is thought for thought, so it's the idea. What's the content of this passage, right? That's the idea. All right, all English translations have been created utilizing one of these two philosophies. One of these two is every English translation. All right, so let's talk about, first of all, FE, or the Formal Equivalent Translation. Well, as I said, this is a literal translation. By the way, the Latin litera is letter. In other words, to the letter, exact words of the original text, i.e., it's a word for word translations. The translators in an FE philosophy Parallel the wording and grammatical structure of the original Hebrew and Greek. What the original text says by how it says it. Now this is a real temptation for translations today. What do they do? They change the order of the words. Why? So we'll understand it better. Have you seen passages where the order of the words changes the meaning of the words? Absolutely. We're going to look at some. Absolutely where they change the order of the words, and it changes the meaning. That's important. So, which one do you want? The order that God inspired it in, or the order that a translator said, we should change this and fix it? Careful. Pure FE translators would not rearrange it. FE conforms English translation as much as possible to the original form. In essence, it's biblical English. So you see what the original form, how it says things. Sometimes they sound like they're backwards. Sometimes it sounds like there's, it's like the prepositional phrase is not in the right place. You know what I mean? It'll say of something and then give the thing. It's, it's a different, we got some examples coming, but it's a different way sometimes to see this. This is considered biblical English. It's different. It's not the way we speak. By the way, not true in all languages. Not true in all languages. Some languages use speech much like the Greek. Their speech is closer to the Greek. You can imagine the Greek is closer to the Greek. <laughs> right? So there are languages that do have, they do put their, I mean, have, has anybody ever you know learned a foreign language and they put things in different places like the that dust? That's one of the hardest things to understand. There's also that masculine and feminine thing, which is also difficult on some languages, but they put the stuff, things in different order, right? So you can't say, well, you know, English is the superior, you know, we know how to put that. No. <laughs> really? God didn't inspire his word in English, did he? Could he have waited? Yeah. Could have. Didn't. Didn't. Is English more common today than Greek? Yep. It is. English is the most common in the world. It is not the one spoken by the most people. Chinese beats us. At any rate. Translator's role in a formal equivalent is not interpreting the Bible for the church. It is just to be a translator. So a translator who's translating the Bible in FE, his job is not to interpret it. It is only to translate it. Some Hebrew and Greek have no formal equivalent in English. But the translator is to make a, and here's a quote, serious attempt to retain the form as much as possible. So if there's not an exact explanation, I mean an exact equivalent of the way that this is, the translator is to try to make it as close as possible. Does that mean it's exact? No. Which is why sometimes you'll hear a pastor say, in the Hebrew, this literally says this. In the Greek, this literally says this. Why? Why? Well, because sometimes we need to hear some of that to understand it. Sometimes that's detrimental because we take that to mean something else, and that actually in the context of the text, that changes the way that whatever the text is saying. If you break one word out and say, well, the Greek, this literally means this. Well, no. You have to look at the context of the text. It matters. Two. The word two. I used it last week. Barb gave me the idea. She said two. Two. You don't know what I mean when I say Two unless they use it in context, right? There are two people at this table. I'm talking about the quantity of one, two, correct? We are going to the sanctuary. I'm talking about us going up to the sanctuary, right? So there are words in our own language that you don't understand unless you see them in the context. So we have to be careful about isogeting a particular word In a passage and saying well this word means this we have to understand it in the context of the passage and what would be our check against that other scripture right okay if i think that that actually means this because wow this word actually means this too where else is that in scripture that i can check that against to make sure i'm not misinterpreting right all right dynamic equivalent or de the dynamic or the idea is the meaning that's why it's called dynamic equivalent. It's the dynamic or what's happening. The idea is the meaning. It's not the words or the grammatical form. It considers the form as a serious barrier to communication. Now, we're, we're gonna, you're going to see some quotes from some of the translator instructions and also the Bible introductions for some different translations today. I'm going to read some to you. But you're going to see that that's where they're at. The idea that if we just use the words in the way that they are in the Greek or the Hebrew, it's actually going to be detrimental for people to understand it. It's going to be bad. The basic unit of translation for DE is the thought. I already said this thought for thought. The primary focus of the translator is to convey the meaning of the original text, not the words. Is to convey the meaning of the original text, not the words. The goal of DE is not to reproduce the form of the original text, but to produce a response to the text in the modern reader that the original hearer would have to the original text. Now, think about that for a second. This is the goal. In a DE translation, the goal of the translator is to reproduce, I'm sorry, is to produce a response to the text in a modern reader that the original hearer would have to the original text. Okay, so I'm going to look at a passage, and I'm going to see that it says something in the Greek, and then I'm going to have to immerse myself into that current culture. What would the people of Israel, what would the Gentiles of Samaria, what would people take that to mean back then? Now, if you haven't already, there should be a little red flag going off inside you right now because that's a huge problem right from the get-go. Why? You're not there. You don't know what they would have thought. And I can guarantee you that they all didn't respond the same Right? Neither do we. They're not all going to respond the same. The interpreter in a DE, a translator, he has to come up with an interpretation of that. He has to say, well, this passage to them in their culture would mean this. So now, I must come up with an idea that will make people feel the same way with today's language. You see how far that is from the original word? So, If I want to convey to somebody the idea that, let's say, the Romans had in response to Paul's letter to Rome, I must then know my audience, right? And I must come up with how I'm going to get them to respond the same way. Now, let me just ask you a question right off the bat. If I was to say to you, I'm going to quote a verse to you, right? You're going to recognize it from Romans. We've talked about it many times over the last year at least. It's going to mean something to you. Submit to the higher powers. Romans 13. Submit to the higher powers. Do you think that means the same thing to you that it meant to the Romans in Rome under Nero, while their friends and other members of their body are being tortured to death in the Colosseum, do you think that means the same thing to you as it did to them? I would say that it meant something much scarier and more significant to them than it does to you. Do you think that that means something different to those in China? Yeah. Oh, yeah pick a country. It means something different, right? Well, here's the problem. We're not the only ones that speak English. We're not the only ones. So how does an interpreter take what was meant for the Romans and somehow get that thought to us so that we feel the same way? That's difficult. I would say impossible. I would say impossible. That's a few words from the entire word of God. How do you take every thought in the scripture and put it in a way that everyone will have the same response as the original listener? I would say it's impossible that there's no way for you to do it. You can't. If somebody's doing that, could they get it right some of the time? Presumably, yes, right? But would that then be the only thought that was in the original passage? Well, it might be, right? Jesus wept as Jesus wept as Jesus wept. Jesus cried. Okay. If you're the apostles, the disciples, and you're with Christ, And you've seen him do miracles. And then you see him cry over Lazarus. Do you think that would have a different impact on you than it would for us to read Jesus wept? Yeah. Hard to actually put that into words. That would mean the same thing to us. I would say impossible. My opinion is that that would be impossible. But this is the idea of dynamic equivalence. This is the idea of the translators working on a DE translation. Obviously, what that means is the translator's role is to communicate the intent of the writer, the intent of the writer, not the form of the text. To do so, they must decide what the writer meant and put it in their own words. That's, that's what they're doing, basically. The DE method is analysis, transfer, and restructuring. In other words, first they analyze, they interpret the original text. Here's what it meant. So you see right there off the bat, we've got issues, right? How do they know that that's the true, that's the only meaning of the original text? Then they transfer it, they decide the best way to restate the original, and then they restructure it how to easily communicate the content of the message. So let's move things around so that people are going to get it really easily, they're going to understand it. And you'll see as you Consider some of the DE versions that we're going to look at over the next couple of weeks. Some of them actually do a better job of that than others. Some are disjointed and kind of awkward. And some, it's like reading a book. And that's what they wanted. All right. So here's today's English version, or the TEV. Here's what they say. Here's what the preface says. The primary concern of the translators has been to provide a faithful translation... Of the meaning, you see the words here? Of the meaning of the Hebrew, Aramaic, and Greek text. This, that's, the first sentence tells you, this is a dynamic equivalent translation. Their first task was to understand correctly the message, the meaning of the original. Okay, pause. Here's the method. Analyze, transfer, restructure. So what are they going to lay out here? Their first task was to understand correctly the meaning of the original. Analyze. After ascertaining the accurate, as accurately as possible the meaning of the original, the translator's next task was to express the meaning in a manner and form easily understood by the readers. They're describing the DE process. Every effort has been made to use language that is natural, clear, simple, and unambiguous. Consequently, there has been no attempt to reproduce in English the parts of speech, sentence structure, word order, and grammatical devices of the original language. So the TEV is pure DE. It is what they think that God's word meant to the original listener and trying to tell you in a way that will make you feel the same way. Today. The NIV translator's manual. This is the translator manual to those who are actually translating the NIV. The translators will seek to communicate to their readers what the inspired word was intended by God to communicate to those who read or heard it as originally given no more and no less. They will approach a passage with this question What was the writer saying in his language to the people of his day? Then will he will they will then say, How do we express the same meaning in our language today? Sometimes equivalent words and the same sentence structure will be suffice, at other times they will prove inadequate. The translators then will not be tied to words but to meaning. D E. The N I V is D E as a dynamic equivalent. You understand what they're saying here? They're saying, let me back up, tie these two things together for you. What was the writer saying in his language to the people of his day? Then it was, say, how do we express the same meaning in our language today? Right? Notice up here. To those who read or heard it as originally given, no more and no less. That's exactly why the Roman Catholic Church kept the Bible in Latin. Why? Because you're not smart enough to read it. We have to tell you what it means. You don't understand it. You just read this thing, you're not not going to interpret it right. We've got to tell you the way that it should be interpreted. Wow. You understand, right? They're saying you aren't, qualified to understand God's word as he originally wrote it. We must tell you what it means instead. Now, why did believers have a problem with the Roman Catholic Church approach to this for centuries? Why? Why did they have a problem with this? How do you know it's true? How did they know it was true? How did they know that the word of God said that? How did they know that if they made a pilgrimage, they could actually receive some indulgences to have time off of purgatory? How did they know that? How did they know that they were supposed to go to confession every week? How did they know? They didn't know they had to take what was told and accept it as the truth. There's no ability for them to be Bereans, right? And somebody that has a DE Bible, they got a difficulty being a Berean too. All they can really do is check against what the translator said in another passage. They don't have the ability to check it against what the original was. Are you with me? It's very difficult. So let me just ask you this question. Do you feel like, on any issue, any issue, you could pick the issue. So I'm not I'm not talking about just biblical or spiritual issues, I'm talking about life issues. Is there any issue that you're completely unbiased? I think I could argue no. You are biased on every single issue. Every issue. You're biased. Why? Everyone's biased. Why? Experience, beliefs, worldview, all these things influence every issue in life. You think, well, all right, we talked about baptism. I mean, obviously there's a difference there, right? I'm biased more toward immersion believers' baptism. Presbyterians wouldn't be. They would be biased toward covenant baptism. Right? I could say, well, I'm biased toward individual church government. Presbyterians would say, no, part of a synod. Presbyter. Right? Forget that. What's the appropriate colors to wear in the fall? You have a bias. You either think it's the, it's the fashion trend of the day, or you don't, you don't care. You don't think it's important to be worried about that stuff. That's a bias, too. Everybody has a bias in everything. So now, when we take God's word, and we're going to translate it thought for thought, our bias becomes part of the translation. Can you see this? Do you think that if you believe that God's word teaches, the whole concept of Christianity and being faithful to God results in a spiritual and a physical wealth and well-being? Sometimes that's called a prosperity gospel. Have you heard this? Right? Joel Osteen. For example, if you think that that's the way it is, you're probably going to want to de-emphasize some of those passages that talk about persecution on believers. Right? Now, you'll justify it because you'll say, well, when Paul wrote that, when John wrote that, when Peter wrote that, what they were saying was, to those believers that were going through it, this. But you're going you're to naturally translate those things according to your bias. It's very difficult for you to even think through an issue without your bias. It's really hard. Now, of course, I don't know, does anybody here think their bias is wrong all the time? No, none of you do. You always think your bias is right, right? So, so the translators, they think their bias is right. So when they're translating something and they want to get something out of you, they're not going to think that God is trying to tell us that we're going to be persecuted because we're believers. Because they don't believe it. You see a problem there? That's just one small example, right? What if you believe in modalism. Christ became different things. Or Christ was not God. Arianism. He was created by God, was the son of God, but not God. Do You think an Arian translating the scriptures might make some changes? Yes, in fact he did. Origen is his name and we're going to talk about him. I think this is the last point of the DE section. Yeah, this is the last point. It worked out perfect. The translator does not just transfer the words. They interpret the meaning for the reader. The assumption is that they understand all the meanings that God intended for his church. So I actually already mentioned this point. Stole my own thunder again there. But you understand that's what they're doing. They're assuming that they understand exactly what God's meaning was for his church based on what they believe and understand that to mean at the time of the original writing, and so therefore they're going to try to elicit the same response from you today by writing words that they think is going to get you to think the same thing. Like every part of that has a problem, a big problem. Can you see how that method would lead to wildly different translations? where the FE method, the formal equivalent method, should lead to the same translations. I mean, if our focus is every jot and tittle is going to be correct according to the original, to the translation, as close as we can possibly get it, that's going to pretty much be the same all the time. Only a few variations. But if it's dynamic equivalent, those translations can be wildly different. Because it's up to the interpreter. The translator is interpreting the scripture. All right. Next week, we will apply the verbal inspiration and translation policy and see how they both interact together. Yes, ma'am. <laughs> However, if I brought that to your attention, somebody criticized you, someone would say, She thinks you shouldn't teach this class because you have bad dreams. And <laughs> <laughs> that's not what I mean at all. Right. A simple error or error or or yeah. And I think we need to be careful when we're talking to each other to not try to interpret the thoughts of what people are saying. If they say something that you think is not quite right, bring it out. Don't. don't it, they hold absolutely there is I, I can't even quantify the number of percentage of problems that happen in the local church based on somebody misinterpreting what somebody else meant Somebody says something, they think that meant something. Somebody gives them a look, they think that meant something. Somebody doesn't say something, they think that meant something. And instead of doing exactly what you just suggested, going to that other brother or sister and saying, I wanted to ask what you meant by this because I kind of felt like this. And clearing the air, they just get offended, which eventually leads to problems. That's not who we're supposed to be. We're supposed to be loving each other. And, of course, it doesn't just, I mean, you're correct, 100% 100 correct. It doesn't just happen here. I mean, (laughs) this happens everywhere, right? Whether it's at work or whether it's with your neighbor or whether it's with your family member or whatever it is, people take things the wrong way because they don't pay attention to what people said. And if they did pay attention to what people said and they got offended, they don't go to the person and say, that kind of hurt my feelings because I felt like you. And then that person has a chance to say, well, I'm sorry, I didn't mean it that way. Which is, by the way, most of the time what happens. Somebody says, I didn't intend that. I didn't, I didn't, they didn't mean that. Sometimes they do. But many times they don't. Thank you, Bev. That's a good point and a good reminder for us. Let's close in a word of prayer.